0: Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and we have another brilliant Q&A with Dr. Mike. It feels like a while since I've spoken to Mike. I mean, it's actually just been two weeks, um, and I basically was out of action because of just depletion and just tired dieting. Um, But Mike is massing, and he's going to show everyone your your dead baby shake. What was it that you're drinking? Oh, cool, yeah.
1: So, you know, always doing the most advanced science. The pink is a mixture of the flesh and blood of, now I said dead babies, but really they're best blended alive. You know, you don't want frozen <laughs> babies. That would be just absolutely not state of the art. So it's great because, you know, we really all of the uh, macros and shit aside. It's the life force that we really want. Who's gotten more of it than babies? I submit that's nobody. So in order to steal a life force of other human beings, whose potential lives have been, you know basically taken into form something greater uh yeah that's that's what i'm doing here and it it, it pays off i feel i get their nightmares sometimes i see the (laughs) lives they could have had but it doesn't bother me i wake up shake it off go back to sleep
0: and i mean well babies are growing massively so they have all that hormones like are setting you up forget about it right totally so um hopefully everyone realizes that was an absolute joke i really want to make that very clear because we don't want any lawsuits coming in you know what here's Mike the thing if if you don't think that's a, if you don't
1: it. you can't tell that that's a joke you need to book something with your psychologist where you sit down and you just say i can't figure the world out anymore and they're like what happened <laughs> and you're like i think people are drinking babies for real and they're like oh and you start writing shit down in a notebook like <laughs>
0: oh dear oh they're anyway. gonna start a uh, grinder gonna sell sell a uh, baby bl- blend <laughs> that's great it is powdered but it's not the same but it still has some of the life force that we're. <laughs> for. awesome well we're getting to the questions now guys um after that uh, nice discussion and the first <laughs> one i have for mike is from morton morty who's uh asking what's the worst cases of overreaching you've ever experienced Um, And how did you deal with that in terms of your training, nutrition, and recovery? Also me personally? I guess so, yeah. Or, I mean, if you've seen anyone
1: else do something
0: ridiculous.
1: So I guess I got a couple of examples. The worst ever is a form of local overreaching that I got separately on two different occasions in my pectoralis major and in my triceps. These for me tend to be likely very predominantly fast twitch muscles. They have all the indicators that they're very fast twitch They were always very gifted muscles for me. They grew incredibly fast. They don't get really much of a response from very high reps, but from low reps, they just grow like crazy. What I did a long, long time ago, literally in college, which must've been, you know, in over 10 years ago, I um, did something to, to my pecs and my triceps. I know what I did to my triceps. I did, I overstimulated the long head with too many uh, rows and pull downs and pull ups. Actually, interestingly enough, mm. and um, for chest, I'm not quite sure what I did because it was I was kind of, I was tracking variables at the time that I changed a couple of things at the same time. I think case in point is that I did too much and I didn't recover, and I under recovered sequentially for several weeks. What ended up happening was uh, still as yet undiagnosed sport injury, where my muscles will, if I train them hard for three weeks on end, on like week three, they will basically uh, knot up or something and just pull. And during like, you know, very peak efforts. And when they pull, it rips something because it hurts for a couple of days after. Another thing is it's not a major muscle tear because it literally heals in three or four days. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's scar tissue related or something. But I have to manage fatigue for those muscles extra carefully. and they have very low MRVs um, because I I think just overtrained them uh, to the point where it was a local overtraining and it was really, really bad. During the time that they became overtrained before the pulling started happening, both muscles experienced a high degree of what are called benign fasciculations. That's when you flex your muscle and it just goes like that after you flex it. You're like, what the fuck? I turned that thing off. (laughs) So there's some really weird shit happening with a decoupling of excitation and contraction. Really bad stuff. It never healed. Um, special sports supplements made it better, but not much. Um, and, um, that's probably one of the big reasons I'm, uh, maybe not one of the big, one of the big reasons why I looked into recovery as hard as I did, because when people say there's no such thing as overtraining, that's the purest form of bullshit ever. And I could imagine if I thought that still, I could have had every single muscle in my body just be completely fucked up and just totally useless. Um, so it's the worst case of local overreaching I've ever had, overtraining. Um, I've had the worst cases of overreaching I've had systemically. I've never overtrained systemically because that would be really bad and takes months to recover from. Um, uh, what I did was um, during several contest preps or very hard cuts, um, I would uh, be overreached to a humongous extent. But this involved uh, special sports supplements, which are interesting because they, they, they make some things non-issues for recovery, but other systems they don't really recover. Um, so, you know, there, there were times where I would come into the gym. I didn't want to go to the gym at all. I mean, at all. I could just, if I could just never lift again, that'd be great. I would come into the gym and warming up with Bent rows with the bar, was like almost like moving mountains, it was exceptionally difficult. And I was like, this is completely, completely insane. I'm never gonna survive this. And um, as I warmed up, I felt better and better and better. And then the workouts actually went okay. (laughs) And then after the workout, I'd be buzzing for a little while. And then I would crash later that night and then the next couple of days after a hard workout were just terrible I could barely fucking make any sense of anything and I was of course dieted down which helps right? it uh, it makes everything worse so it was one of these things like the, the sports supplements were basically a string <laughs> holding my body together and uh, I don't know how the fuck I survived that shit but that was really something the good news is is that as soon as the post contest, post cutting reversal of calories and macros happens, you know, you wash away almost all of your fatigue completely clean. Um, is that hypercaloric condition? Uh, it just, I mean, you know, what a weapon against fatigue. And, I, and interestingly enough, you know, uh, some of the compounds, uh, for example, uh trenbolone acetate, which I don't recommend for pretty much anybody, it's fucking poison, it interferes with your sleep. So you don't sleep that well. And because you're hypocaloric and starving to death, you don't sleep very well at all. I remember having literally actual sleepless nights. When you pull out trend after a show because you don't need it anymore and you're going mentally insane, it's time to stop. And when you start eating food again, like I've slept for a week straight, 12 hours per night. Wow. that'll heal your ass up real quick after that. I was like, I feel great. (laughs) But there's this, it's like this wave of fatigue just crashes on you. And you're like, Oh, because you like post after like a show or after a long cut, you almost psychologically liberated because you're like, I don't have to fight this war anymore. It's over. And you just like, everything goes, like you just can't get out of bed. And so, um, that was pretty much, you know, uh, how that went. And my performance never declined a ton, probably because of the sports supplements, but, um, you know, also like relatively logical training, et cetera. Um, how did I come back from it? Well, I'll tell you what, pulling volumes, reducing intensities. Hypercaloric diet, not crazy, just mild, and uh, and tons of sleep and tons of relaxation. Um, I think a huge thing in reducing fatigue is reducing psychological fatigue and stress. You know, if you're still running around trying to like do, you know, like impress your boss at work and he's a real asshole or something, and your days are just filled with just total chaos, man, you can eat and sleep a whole lot, and, and that might just get canceled out by all the stress. So I think a, a big thing is to just take a psychological de stressor. And um, I think that solves a lot of problems. That's super interesting because
0: we were just talking off air about my depletion week and how hard that was. And then you didn't die. No. And I think barely. (laughs) Yeah, barely. And I think this is part of it actually is the fact that um, as a natural and without the the aid of the compounds, I don't think, I I don't know. I don't want to say you can't because you definitely can, but I think to be able to push yourself to that, awful state it's probably almost most people can't do it because like almost maybe it's a mental thing that that it just stops them because i know i barely got to the gym but when i got to the gym i could still work out i could still do stuff but mentally my body didn't want me to go there Um, so that's really interesting and i i was the same i was it's weird it was kind of like I felt like awful that week and now I feel amazing and I had a cold and things like that and it all cleared within the first few days. Oh, um, and my sleep improved and that was just more food and it's amazing how important just food can be in that sense.
1: Yeah. You know, the funny thing is about people uh, when they're commenting on the the, the effect and power of uh, uh, drugs on recovery is most of the comments about how they're super powerful and just the world is just revolutionary come from people who've never used them. Um, uh, you know, they just kind of assume that, oh, just there's no rules when you you start taking shit. Yeah. You can just be Superman. Um, nothing will save you from a hypocaloric diet and a lack of sleep. Nothing. I remember when I posted that, uh, on Facebook, people got at me and they were like, whatever, like you're just making excuses for drug people. And Oh yeah, I'm sure it's still hard. Blah, blah. Yeah. Right. And then I had people message me in private, a bunch of people, like top athletes, top, top powerlifters and stuff wow. who use. And they're like, Hey, by the way, I'm not going to get into debate with these people, obviously, because I'd be admitting drug use, but you're completely right by a long shot. And they're like, I tried to outdose my sleep and my stress, and it just didn't work. So it's like, you know, you see guys pre-contest at the IFBB, you know, Mr. Olympia, you know, you see them in the the athlete meeting room, you know, the athlete press conference. They're on the most gear anyone's ever taken in the whole world they don't look right. <laughs> They're not like jumping up and down. Like some of the guys, it's funny because they'll try to get him to talk shit. Like, Hey, Thomas James, what do you think about Phil Heath? And he just be like, yeah. I and mean, I think, uh, I think, gonna, you know, <laughs> we'll see what happens. And it's like, Oh wow. These guys are still fucked up. So uh, it's one of those things like it it's it stuff into perspective when you actually super diet at hard and and, 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 you know, naturals have the world to learn from this. You know, your best weapons are sleep and food um, and a lower um, an, uh, stress management ability because you don't choose always the kind of stressors that are put on top of you yeah. but you can psychologically choose how you deal with them like I just uh, posted about this on Facebook but really good example is like traffic you know um, London doesn't have any traffic so you're fine but uh, <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know you can um, be pissed at traffic or you can just relax and enjoy a podcast or some good music. You will get to your destination at exactly the same time, whether or not you choose one or the other. One of them is an educational or relaxing opportunity, an opportunity to enjoy being alive. The other one is a wholly pointless exercise in the misapplication of mammalian drives. It's like a fucking gerbil yeah. trying to eat plastic. That's what you're doing. You're the evolutionary equivalent of that. Like, don't eat plastic you can't digest. It's not good for you. He doesn't fucking know that. It looks like food. He just eats it, then he gets sick. Just the same way when you see humans in traffic, like if aliens that are super advanced come down to Earth and watch humans in traffic, they'll be like, yeah, we're not going to talk to them yet because they're <laughs> clearly not advanced enough to understand how their emotions are limiting their cognition. So.
0: I need I need to clip that segment and play it into my ears every time I get annoyed, like on the tube or anything, like in a queue for some shopping, and just so that I can like, calm down. I, I can even see myself getting annoyed in those situations far totally. too easily. We all
1: we all do, and it's always a mistake. the The trick is, I didn't. I phrased this on Facebook a particular way. The trick is not to not get annoyed. The trick is to once you get annoyed, go up 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 up. I know what I'm doing. I'm gonna try to ease it up because yeah. like not trying to get annoyed i mean that's even more pressure right don't get annoyed don't get annoyed ah, everyone sucks <laughs> so yeah it's, awesome. it's, i think it's a it's a big factor
0: cool and uh let's go on to the next question which is from maurice simpada who has asked um he said ask him if he believes there's an intensity of effort threshold for hypertrophy um, and what is this and um, why you suggest starting mesocycles with maybe four or three reps in reserve rather than a conventional one to two reps in reserve like Mad Cow or um, I think GBR which is I think Larm McDonald's generic bulk uh, routine
1: oh. I think those are fine ways to start shit off um, here's the thing and this is actually a really interesting point A point that I think um, uh, finds me in agreement with the 3DMJ crowd just by pure arrival at this in different ways. Of course, I would love for them to confirm whether or not they really think this, but they seem like they're supporters of particularly Eric Helms, who I assume speaks for the scientific opinion of the 3DMJ crowd. Um, Broderick uh, Chavez and I were just talking about this idea a little while back. I was consulting with him um, on the Volume Concepts book. Uh, per, for this exact issue, and here it is. Uh, I think there's very good literature to support um, and very little theoretical evidence to contradict the idea that you still get some growth from four reps in reserve. Right? It's not maximum growth. But from four reps in reserve, you get some really cool stuff. You get growth, not a ton, but let's say it's good, fine, we get growth we get an ability to practice the movements and get into the groove with them so that we can overload them even more in the future, right? Can, you know, if you're really good at squatting and you're really finding your groove with technique, you're gonna be able to overload the squat more later. In addition to that, it uh, gives you very little fatigue So the ratio, you know, one of the most important things in training is the ratio of stimulus to fatigue that a program or exercise or way of training gives you, not just the absolute amount of stimulus, because look, training to eccentric failure you know what that is? That's when you can't control the way down anymore. It's forget the way up, right? So you, you hit concentric failure, which means you can't move up anymore. Isometric failure is when you can't hold the bar. Eccentric failure is when the bar just falls on you and you can't even slow it down. I mean, doing that is by far the best stimulus for hypertrophy, but the stimulus to fatigue ratio is unsustainable. Stimulus to fatigue ratio For four from fail Is decent It's really good And you know After a while The overload principle says You can't train like that All the fucking time mm-hmm. But if you start A mesocycle like that It builds good momentum It still gets you good results And it doesn't Accumulate a lot of fatigue So it's not like Well you could be Training harder And accumulating fatigue So that when you have to deload It's all good and worth it Because it's just meat and potatoes Kind of stuff It's almost like I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would say uh, Four from fail Three from fail It's like an appetizer To a main core it, it's calories, it tastes good, it eases you into eating, and it actually makes you hungrier and you actually end up eating more of the actual food. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual food's the good stuff for sure. No one's debating that it's the shit that gets you full and gets you calories. But a properly placed appetizer, not for too long, not too much, is called an appetizer for a reason, right? So I think that three of fail, four from fail, if someone was to say – don't train like that, they're essentially arguing for against momentum, they're arguing against um, something that doesn't really cost much or anything in fatigue, and more particularly, they're arguing against easy, very low risk gains, right? No, but you, can, you don't fucking get hurt going four from fail unless it's a super heavy weight, right? Um, mm-hmm. who the hell, even mathematically almost impossible, right? Because from four from fail and you in four reps, that's really your eight RM. You're probably not going to hurt with that. to just doing four, right? So, so then you know, four from fail, you, you don't get hurt. You build a lot of momentum. You still get a, some some bit of gains, and all those benefits combined, it's just hard to argue against, right? So it's one of the situations it's like, do you have to do it? No. Can you do one or two from fail? Yes. Uh, but four from fail, you know, if, uh, if that is going to produce some growth and have all those other benefits, it's just a good idea to do, man. Um, and, and Broderick, probably not more than myself, but he's a big believer in the momentum idea. I think so are the 3 dmj guys. Um, you know, it's great for building momentum. If you can grow from four from fail, and by all indicators, you can, mm-hmm. why just leave that on the table? You basically have like fatigue almost fatigue free, uh injury risk pretty close to zero, momentum building growth. Why are we not doing that? You know what I mean? Like people yeah. like, oh, go straight to one or two from fail. Like you can't, sir. But then, like maybe you're leaving good gains on the table, mm-hmm. and and when the good gains don't come with these big trade-offs on the net balance, they're the great gains. I kind of wish we could always train three or four from fail and never go close to failure. But unfortunately, the overload principle says, well, at some point, you gotta fucking get the shit going. So, uh, you know, and that's fine. I j- I just think we should start. You know, that's my whole thing about effective volume and going all the way up to MRV. All of those arguments work to that end as well. So, you know, why start midway? Why start at your MAV, right? Or whatever? Uh, technically, your MAV would be close to your MEV if you start, but, uh, you know, why start between your MRV and your MEV when you can just start all the way at your MEV and get those easy gains, baby? Get them get him to there why not right and then people you know I think the only real argument against that is to, oh, I, I'm sorry if I look, I'm on a roll lately where I've just gotten sick and tired of every now and again I go through times of patience and times of like bullshit fatigue and uh, I've been talking to Dave Smith the, the guy that you and I are probably going to get on the show to, to rant to us about bodybuilding, oh, yeah. and and he's, he's very ranty all the time so I've been reading his statuses and just getting more pissed uh, you know <laughs> camaraderie wise with him and I've and lately I'm into this phase of just like – just calling bullshit. And, and one of the things that I just call bullshit on is like, look, a lot of the shit people say is a good idea. It's just ego-driven nonsense, you know? Like, you just got to fucking train hard, brother. Like, do you really, though? Yeah, man. Fucking sacrifice to win. Like, okay. Like, what if we can train easier and still grow? Like, you're asking the wrong fucking questions. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, I want to grow. I don't care if it's – you know, if it's super easy and you still grow – I'm sorry, does there any, anyone have an argument for that?
0: I don't. No, and I think it applies to so many things within bodybuilding and like all, all of these sports in which people really like the idea of working hard all the time. But sometimes, and I know from personal experience, when I can still see results via an easier method, it actually eventually allows me to work even harder in future. Totally. So like when you get to that final week before you're deloading, you're overreaching – If you started off lower and then built up to that, you can do so much more than if you started off high and then tried to go up. You don't really get very far. Um, So I think, yeah, from my personal experience, using that approach has been much
1: more superior. You know, the same thing works with dieting, right? So, like, if you cut 250 calories a day and do 200 calories a day more cardio – You lose a bunch of weight pretty fast, and people say, why don't you cut 500 calories? And you're like, why the fuck would I when I can only cut 250 and get great losses? And again, at very little diet fatigue expense, right? And great momentum building. Like if you've already lost five kilos, you're fucking rolling. You know what I'm saying? When you lost some kilos and you're running and gunning, you're like, bring it on, baby. Bring it on. It's great, and it's easy. Why drop into the fucking hell zone? Right away of cutting like a 1,000 or 1,500 calories right off the bat, does it work? I can't argue against yes, it. Of course it fucking works. Is it the most sustainable thing on that balance? I don't think it is. I think it's better to start as easy as you can. And as easy as you can means three or four reps away from failure.
0: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, brilliant. I think the easiest way to sum up what you said is it builds momentum and works really, really well. So, um, yeah, brilliant answer. And we're we'll on to David Beamish's question. Who has asked and i think this is quite interesting um does the optimal rep tempo of the eccentric and concentric portions of a lift differ depending on whether the goal is strength or hypertrophy and if it does how does it differ
1: yes it does um there is an even much bigger difference with power so if you bring power into the equation i mean there's some very simple you know uh, understandings there if you want to develop concentric power you want to keep fatigue minimal you want to keep muscle damage minimum and you want to keep uh, concentric velocity as high as possible so weightlifters are a great example of concentric power training and they don't even do the essential portion of the lift. I mean, in the squat, they drop down as fast as is safe. <laughs> you know, they just get down there and get back up as fast as they can. So in, in something like a press, they'll press and then do like a jerk recovery, right? So they'll press normally and they go, like that right they don't like we're not like we are fucking to lower the press down super slow um and, and obviously for all the other power lifts that they do true true uh you know force times velocity lifts they don't even have any centric component so their centric can count as zero with strength um there is something to say for maximizing the concentric speed but uh, on the other hand um If the loading is heavy enough that's really kind of irrelevant, the lift actually ends up occurring close to 1RM at pretty slow speeds, so it's by no means clear that you have to execute the concentric as fast as possible. There, is t- there are times and places to do that. It costs more fatigue, but it probably makes you better at using more motor units and coordinating them all together. So especially as you get close to a meet, it's probably a good idea to, to push some weight pretty fast. like concentric, the eccentric is something that can definitely be commented on. If your eccentric is too slow, with some exceptions, like if you have to do it for injury purposes or something, if your eccentric is too slow, you're just pissing away energy you could be using on the concentric, right? So you're doing sets of three where you could be doing sets of five. and. A slow eccentric will hypertrophy you more, um, or at least as much, right? Same amount of hypertrophy. And uh, it will for sure make you good at eccentrics. But remember, in in powerlifting and strength, nobody gives a shit how good your eccentric is, but it's fucking irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So um you know a good squat isn't countered by how slow you went down it's countered by do you come up so the yeah. quicker you go down and reasonable you know not super bouncy shit that's unsafe the more energy you have to exert yourself on the way up for hypertrophy um the rep tempo seems a, a, largely irrelevant due to self-canceling factors uh, up to where you get to about six seconds concentric and eccentric at that point um it seems that uh you know, research has shown that it's not as effective. So unless you're doing some really dumb shit, super slow training, um, anything kinda works. Um And at that point, it just comes in handy for variation purposes, right? So, just a little bit different kind of stimulus uh, physiologically as well as psychologically. So, you know, you take your squats and do four second negatives and one second concentrics. That's pretty cool. Still works for hypertrophy. But if you do one second eccentrics, one second concentrics, it works pretty much just the same for hypertrophy. Um, Because when you think about it, it's it's cool how these things kind of cancel out, right? So, on the one hand, if you do slower eccentrics, you get you know a, a lot of eccentric damage, right? but you also can only do so many reps like that because it fatigues you more. Yeah. So you end up doing a little bit lower volume than you otherwise could have. On the other hand, if you do fast eccentrics or you know, not, um, not intentionally slowed eccentrics, you don't do as much damage per rep, but you get more reps. And the concentric phase, the rep grows you as well. So you get more of those and uh, higher velocities probably engage more motor units and engage them more, probably are a bigger independent stimulus. So if you can bias your sets towards higher velocity concentrics, you end up getting more reps, And the reps are faster. There's more power produced, which probably results in more growth. If you can slow down the eccentrics, you get the eccentric-mediated growth, etc. They tend to balance it out to the point where we, in research, can't tell them apart. Does that mean they're actually equivalent? Maybe. There might be a superior all-around rep tempo for hypertrophy, but I'll tell you this. It's to be such a fucking mood point. It's like asking the question of, uh, is it better to eat six meals a day or seven meals a day? It's like, Jesus Christ. Like... I do get questions like that too. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to fucking start. I just go read the Renaissance diet. (laughs) But, uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where, um, so for strength, yeah, I think if you're spending too much time in the eccentric, um, it's going to cost you a little bit. For power, it's going to cost you everything. Um, And for hypertrophy, it's one of the many very good methods.
0: No, that's really interesting. Because I know, Uh, For deadlifts, for example, um, a lot of people will just kind of almost drop it and not do an eccentric portion, which, like we said, for strength makes complete sense for a powerlifter. But for bodybuilding, I guess I've seen the benefit of being slower and it means I have to use less weight and I get less reps, but um, the actual fatigue produced because the weight has to be less is kind of a benefit there and is safer. And
1: uh, when I'm dieting, I find that to be a benefit. Is there something to be said about that? Absolutely. So I'll tell you this, Um, ma'am. Powerlifters in a strength phase, right? Because that's really in a hypertrophy phase, they do similar stuff to bodybuilders. powerlifters in a strength and peaking phase look at local and systemic fatigue, particularly local fatigue, completely differently than bodybuilders. When you do some work in the gym as a bodybuilder and even in the gym, you're like, oh my God, these deadlifts are fucking my back up. Like I'm pumped. I know I'm going to be sore. That's a good thing. You want that disruption. Powerlifters want to put in as much work and as much force with as little disruption as possible. So to them, if they have a, a way to deadlift, that after five, you know, after three sets of deadlifts, their back is still relatively fresh, um, That's really good. They count that as a win. So when they figure out that they can just drop the barbell pretty much, and not have to do the eccentric and they can do more concentric work, that's a win for them because concentric work is why they're there. They're doing as much work as possible. You know, I was training with a a former student and a friend of mine named Brandon Evans and um, Brandon was visiting me at my local gym here and he was doing a deadlift workout and I haven't trained with powerlifters in a little while and motherfucker took him like 35 minutes to warm up for one fucking dead, the first, first rep and he was doing like three sets of two and i was like i remember thinking to myself like god that's why i'm not a powerlifter anymore mm-hmm fuck that you know you know like i want to get to work i'm going to do work but then i realized like it's all worth it it's all worth it because three sets of two at a high intensity successful concentric reps he does not there for the pump he's not there to do work that's not a measure of success he's there to hit prs and he did and it was great and i was like wow that guess that is like a victory you know that's that's why he's here uh for bodybuilders they view it completely differently so that's the thing about you know reps and eccentric tempos and stuff like that bodybuilders want the disruption powerlifters want the least disruption possible so that they can do the most work and get the most practice lifting heavy weights and get the most nervous system adaptation
0: cool no really interesting and i I like the idea of the how it balances each other out eventually anyway so people can kind of find what they they like and
1: use it as a variation tool i think be safe be safe you know don't don't do read any fucking weird esoteric literature and it does exist on fast eccentrics put 120 percent of your max on there and just do fast on the way down but still resist people do shit like that every now and again it's just like just ridiculously stupid ouch yeah don't do that Mm -hmm. cool um
0: we have a question from Delatino, and he's essentially just asked you talked about canola oil, um, I think, probably in the Renaissance Diet book, or it might have been in the health book as well, uh, and saying it's healthy. And he was saying this kind of contrary to what you see in popular media. Um, and he was wondering, kind of wanted to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, canola oil is uh, uh, fractioned out of several different sources. And it's actually an acronym. And um, it's got an industrial processing component. And in every fucking study ever, it's healthy as fuck. And it's its profile of monounsaturated fatty acids, which are usually the very healthy ones. is excellent. Everything about it chemically, everything about it in research says it's really fucking good for your health, except it has a processing component. So people are like, I'm sorry, it doesn't come from Gaia's fucking you know, ass or whatever the fuck, where the fuck uh, healthy shit comes from. Uh, I believe the goddess of the earth Gaia, literally shits it out but you know I'm not up on that stuff uh, recently so it's one of these things where you know the controversy is pure unadulterated bullshit that doesn't survive the fucking light of day for a second I've had, I've hashed out all these conversations so many fucking times it's like so what do you think is bad about canola and they're like oh, it's processed and I'm like mm-hmm. and what about that processing makes it bad and they're like it's processed and you're like hmm what do you drink? And they're like, kombucha. I'm like that's not processed. They're like, um, and they just don't respond. And you're like, all right, that was fun. So, you know, case closed, man, canola oil tested, verified chemically to be healthy. Brilliant. And I think it,
0: it's interesting because I think a lot of people actually, like people are all about butter now. Um, and how that can be like a health food. And in fact, canola oil is much healthier. Than oh yeah.
1: Not even is. close. Yeah, but butter comes out of a cow's whatever the fuck, tits and shit. and That's great. You know, who knows, man? P, You know, I'd say what, when you use a little notable quotable, when you base your analysis of the world on feelings, you're going to be confused a whole lot and not a goddamn thing is going to make any fucking sense for long. If you base it on reason and logic and understanding of science, shit makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't come out as uh, a as sexy and shit like that, you know, and be like, oh my God, are you saying some processed foods are good for health? Yes.
0: Are you saying that so natural
1: foods are bad for health? Also, yes.
0: That's an excellent quote. That I, I want to quote that because that's brilliant. Um, well, no, feel that's free a, to
1: pull out the video and just yeah, put it well, on YouTube or yeah, something. <laughs> um,
0: and then his next question was uh, thoughts on anti-inflammatory slash antioxidant foods like berries, seafood, um, and he asked about kind of having those around the workout and whether they could hinder adaptations um, and maybe.
1: Yeah. Um, The doses have to be high, so you have to be combining quite a bit or just eating a shitload of antioxidants. But when the doses are high, there has been demonstrated pretty reliably an anti-anabolic effect from antioxidants. It is probably based around the signaling mechanisms that occur during and the several hours after training. So I would say that if your post-workout shake could be Gatorade and whey protein – but you want to do like, you know, goji berry fucking Nepal juice or some shit like that with 80 trillion antioxidants, and um, then uh, I'd opt for the Gatorade, right? Is it a huge concern? Do you have to like not eat fruit for hours after training? No, just don't inherently. Uh, this is here's the quotable from this one do not purposefully try to consume extreme amounts of antioxidants within the training window and six hours after that's my best advice if you don't go out of your way to try to consume a shitload of antioxidants you're probably fine um i wouldn't go out of my way to not consume them but if you're like oh this new supplement has 10 times the antioxidants eh, take it at night you know what i mean take it way away from your workout and even then you know if you eat a well-balanced diet antioxidants aren't magic um, your body has several uh, endogenous antioxidants that work really really well and when you take in a, a lot of antioxidants exogenously it actually um, slows down endogenous production of antioxidants um and so it ends up being just about the fucking same so antioxidants are not a fucking cure-all they're not a panacea if you eat a very well-balanced diet plenty of fruits and vegetables you don't have to worry about that shit you just literally don't um and uh, other than that so don't high dose it at all and if you if you're gonna uh, don't do it in the workout window
0: cool yeah I remember it was years ago I, I worked for a, a cycling company and they had uh, part of their sports supplement line was kind of they're introducing antioxidants as like a recovery mechanism oh, and no. then I kind of looked into it and I was like this just makes doesn't make sense why would you want to kind of mute the adapt- adaptations that you're trying to actually provide so um, it's funny that that it's kind of coming around again after so many years, but I guess all of these things do. Oh my God, they do, absolutely. So we've got a question from, well, we've got a few questions. We'll see how many we can get through. Um, Roberto Ricardiella has asked, can Mike discuss this stress response adaption um, kind of uh, concept in depth and how you implement it for overloading, he says, semi-overloading and recovery sessions specifically? Uh, He said, you've always spoken about them, but kind of never in a detailed discussion on a podcast. And he thinks it would really benefit a lot of people in terms of like, and himself from a programming perspective.
1: Oh, you know, the best way to talk about this stuff is to have graphs and to have text because it's really heavy shit. Mm-hmm. um and i think having graphs and text allows people to really look at the graphs and really process it and really read the text and reread it if necessary um so you know um i can only go over it briefly i think um and then refer people to scientific principles of strength training um mm-hmm. the overload chapter sra chapter where it's discussed more in depth and the volume concepts book which should be out within the month discusses it to some extent um, maybe at some point we'll write some much more in-depth stuff about that uh, certainly that, the eventual when I learn enough hypertrophy book uh, we'll definitely discuss that kind of stuff but that's a easy. long way long ways yeah I guess teasing myself man I'm not ready to write that far yeah. so um, you know generally it was a stimulus that has to be sufficiently disruptive to uh, in, engage uh, systems that uh, alter the physiology um, generally speaking, there is probably fatigue generated from the disruption itself that has to dissipate before you can come in and hit it again and overload. There's probably also a refractory period where, as the musculature and nervous system is itself getting upgraded, it is not optimally functional and again interferes with overload. And more than that, not only does it just not, uh, you know, for example, if your muscles and nerves are really fucked up after training, not only is it that you can't hit overload again, it's also that the, at the very chemical molecular level, those structures may be resistant to further adaptation. Um, and I think during overreaching, we push those systems a couple of times downwards, more and more and more levels of fucked up. And as long as we don't push them too low, and that would be overtraining, they rebound higher than they have ever would have. Um, is that a reliable and safe way of chronic training? No, it's probably not. Which is why we don't do it all the time. Uh, we only do it on occasion at the end of a mesocycle, etc. So. Uh, You know, as far as uh, easier training, it's the kind of training that doesn't disrupt structures very much, puts a premium on recovery, allows those curves to settle much more than they otherwise would by the next training session, so you can give a big session again. Um, And for deloads and stuff, we're looking uh probably for very little or no net disruption at all and a very little or no net disruption but some movement in the area usually causes an overcompensation and fatigue reduction so uh, that's best way i could sum it up it much easier to understand if you look at the curves um and i think that's probably you know it's one of those like too complicated for a podcast type of answer unfortunately
0: I think a lot of the time kind of people have, they may, I, I would have thought Roberto has your book and sometimes they kind of, here's like you're on so many podcasts and things like that. And sometimes you just forget the concepts like that. They're actually displayed really well back in the book. I know I've kind of read your book maybe three, four times. And every time I go back, I'm like, ah, oh, I picked something up fresh again. It kind of refreshes it and makes you re-understand the term a bit better. But in a, in a sense, I just something that made me kind of ding something in my mind was: would a in terms of like a traditional training week that wasn't during a deload, it was like maybe mid your second week of your uh, mesocycle. One of the kind of recovery sessions could you almost view that as like a deload style of workout where it's actually just promoting recovery more than anything else, or would that still be too light?
1: Totally. I mean, it depends on exactly how light it is. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can still get a little bit of stimulus out of it, but give it enough time. To, like, so, so, for example, if you train super hard on Monday and you train easier on Thursday, I mean, you have Friday, Saturday, Sunday to recover. Technically, if you wanted to not make any adaptations on the net balance, you'd be completely recovered, which means back to baseline on Saturday or Sunday. But because you wait, by the time that Monday rolls around, you've dropped so much fatigue and all the supercompensations have allowed to take course that you're actually more advanced than you were on Monday. So it's some sessions are designed to really disrupt you and just take you back to baseline. Some sessions are allowed to disrupt you only a little bit, conserve a lot of adaptations, and let you go up over and above baseline. So um which ones to use, how to structure them, etc. Jesus, that's a whole talk in and of itself, and it's very specific to the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. No, brilliant. Um, I think we have time for one more question um, from Roberto, um, and he's asked, in terms of training duration, uh, what are your thoughts on kind of, I mean, is there an optimal length of duration of training, um, or is there kind of a length at which you think it just becomes overall too fatiguing, uh, too long of a single session?
1: Yeah depends a lot on what kind of training you're doing if you're working the whole time it's a shorter duration than if you're bullshitting a lot and resting a lot and then working and bullshitting and resting um i would say that i'll say a couple of things if you have a workout shake with you particularly with protein and carbohydrates you can add in 30 minutes to an hour on top of workout duration and not risk a lot of catabolism if you don't have one of those shakes uh, you know you're looking at probably less time that your workout is going to be effective. And also because of energy production, you're just not going to be able to train very hard. As far as the maximum length of time, maximum, anything beyond two and a half to three hours is like tons of junk volume at the back end, uh, tons of fatigue for pretty much no added benefit. And you're just, just trying to either do way too much or just not, you're trying not to get into the gym very often. To put this in perspective, you know I've seen advanced powerlifting programs that are Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I think it's fucking ridiculous to be completely honest. And, and and guys will probably say like, yeah, I'm doing like a DUP program. It's got me in the gym for four hours. I'm Like, Jesus fucking Christ! Whoa. Don't you have a job or a family? And like, I've started oh, It takes me three and a half hours. It just looks like some programs like the Monday, Wednesday, Friday DUP split, right? You've, you've seen like the typical programs yeah. like that. They do like squat, bench, and deadlift or some version of those every single session. So you have to warm up for that every single session. And one time I asked a guy who was like proponent, I was like, how long does this take? He's like three, three and a half hours. And I'm like, fuck, what do you think you're getting out of the last lift? And it's like, well, for recovery, like just don't do it and you'll recover like probably almost as well, right? Or like, just do like 60 kilos for two sets of five and leave for fuck's sake. And um, I think adding a fourth day would be great because then all the sessions would be under two hours. You could really get in and hit it hard. I think that, you know, people quote Arnold and shit, like anything longer than 45 minutes is stupid. I mean, that's an extreme. um, I think ideally, if you're super crazy dedicated like Jared Feather and you train twice a day, sessions should be under an hour each on under an hour and a half. But I think if you've got to cram some stuff together, try your best to keep it within two hours. I think after two hours, fatigue is so high that the junk volume risk is very high and the benefit is unclear at that point. Go over two hours,
0: yeah, I'm the same. I kind of want to get out of the gym. I want to go get a meal. I just don't want to be there anymore. Whereas, yeah, when they're a bit shorter, if they're less than 45 minutes or half an hour, I kind of feel like it's either a deload or I didn't really do much. Um, but yeah the sweet spot is definitely between that kind of 45 minutes to an hour and a half totally. i find myself totally. um, and that's the same with splitting up workouts and they only ever get to like two hours it's like leg days on uh, overreaching weeks and you're just like lucky i have my uh, intra workout shake with me because otherwise totally. i don't know how people do this stuff totally yep cool um should we hit one more or do you need to let me uh-huh. check the time one more one more. Cool. And this is Roberto's final question. as well. is good. So uh, Roberto has asked your thoughts on maximum sets per body part per session. Um, so kind of, I guess, a MRV for almost the workout in general. He um, said, for example, more than six sets of chest in one session does not produce a greater stimulus and adds more fatigue. Or is it irrelevant if you're still able to do sets above 60% kind of that minimum threshold hypertrophy in terms of intensity
1: from a practical perspective i think that so so basically the 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 downside is kind of going to be junk volume right and also there's another downside it's at what point are you training uh so many sets per session that in order to get that many sets per session you have to reduce the number of sessions you have per week to a suboptimal frequency my recommendation for frequency is to the same muscle two to four times per week, which means that if my average recommendation for MRV-ish is 20 sets per week per body part, you know that means each session would say have an average of 10 sets. So I'll put it to you this way. I get very skeptical at anything much over 10 sets per session per body part. Can you imagine that? Like five sets of bench and then five sets of bench that's a lot of bench now there's times and places where that's okay but it's not going to be on the net balance so i'll say my not hard but harder uh, line is 15 sets if 15 sets per muscle per session is, is, is in my opinion completely fucking insane and then uh 10 you know to 15 is where you're going to find usually the most sets per session Uh, anything between five and 10 sets per session is usually what you'll see. And I think it's good, um, offers a good combination of, well, we're here. We might as well work and still avoiding junk volume and a less than five sets per session is okay, especially for some muscle groups that tend to recover really quickly and no matter how much you fuck them up and they can be trained really often, like five sets of side delts, rear delts. Um, five sets of uh, forearm flexion work, biceps, etc. You can do four times a week and get 20 sets like that. I think that's totally fine. But like with pecs, if you do five sets of heavy bench one day, You don't just come in and do pecs again the next day or day after because they're just going to be sore even at the tendon. And it's a muscle you just can't really train super often unless some of those sessions are super, super light. For technique work, for powerlifters, they might have some role. For bodybuilding, I just don't think training something like chest or quads very frequently ends up doing you much because you might as well just condense the shit, do it less frequently, and hit it hard more times than hitting it easy. Mm -hmm.
0: No, I I completely agree. And I think actually, when you take the concept of kind of your volume landmarks, and the frequency recommendations that you put out, it kind of covers a lot of these questions in terms of session length, in terms of how many sets per body part, because it just works itself out and kind Mm -hmm. of auto regulates it as long as you don't screw around too much, you're honest with yourself. Most of these things work themselves out, I find in practice.
1: Yeah, and you look when you have multiple constraints on a problem, you have a lot of solutions already circled, right? So if you have if you have constraints that look like an oblong ellipse this way, and constraints that look like an oblong ellipse this way, where they overlap, it's just a little square. There's just not much left, you know. So for example, the two constraints we're talking about here is frequency of training and total volume per week. Like when you work those two shits out, look if you have three sessions of chest and twenty-two sets total. But. Are you going to have 15 sets of chest in any one workout? I don't know, you probably fucked up, did something wrong. On the, on the contrary, are, are you going to have five sets of chest in a workout? Probably not, it's probably going to be more, right? So it's one of those things that tends to work itself out if you, if you yeah. it, it, at the very least, prevents crazy extremes. Cool.
0: Perfect. And we call it a day there. Um, I want to thank Mike again for coming on and answering all these brilliant questions. Thank you guys for your questions. I want to make sure people are aware kind of RP plus is growing and doing tremendously and kind of Mike and James are doing these weekly webinars. Yep. Plug in RP plus. Um, and I, I really enjoy them. So you can actually go, if, if these aren't a enough for you, you can head over to RP plus, they do them every week. They will answer your questions there as well. And there's so much more content, um, to in, kind of enjoy and actually a plug for the, the London seminars that we did, which were fantastic. Um, all of that content is now available on RP plus, um, Dude, exclusively for you guys.
1: People are raving about that. We've had a ton of RP plus customers contact us and be like, Oh my God, the London seminars are amazing. Mike swears too much, but other than that, it's great.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, they love them all, all the more in person. So, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for next year, guys, because there's definitely something in the works there. Um, and actually, if you're interested, definitely contact myself or comment below. You're interested uh, because if we can hype it up, then the more likely it's going to happen, the bigger it will be, the better it will be. Um, so, again, thank you to Mike. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will no doubt catch you soon.
1: Thanks, folks.